Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 238. Today is Sunday the 4th of June 2017 and this interview is with Tiffany St. James, digital transformation strategist and renowned international speaker. Tiffany is the former head of public participation for the UK government and an executive director at the British Interactive Media Association. In this podcast, we discuss with Tiffany the best ways to accelerate digital transformation, how to create entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs, and fulfilling impact versus creating legacy. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today with me, Tiffany St. James. Tiffany and I have uh, spoken at a number of conferences, run into you all over the place, love what you're up to, and of course... We share certain very similar ideas. So, Tiffany, tell us who you are in your words and what's your mindset. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Minta. I'm delighted to be on your show today. Uh, my name is Tiffany St. James. I'm a digital transformation strategist. And I guess I've really cut my teeth uh, in a decade of digital transformation uh, in the UK government. I uh, was fortunate enough to join in a period of, I, I think, the most transition any large institution has ever seen of that size and nature. I joined um, when we uh, pre-email and left uh, just after open data. So saw so enormous changes um, within that period of time. So. So the work that I now do through uh, Transmute, my consultancy, is to help large uh, businesses, other governments around the world, embed better digital and social media capability, if you like. So, so that's a little bit of a, who I am and, and what I've been up to. And really my mindset, almost every task that I had within the UK government uh, had never been done before. So um, my mindset is uh, do it till you're told not to. Uh, uh, hung for a sheep as a lamb, I guess they might say. <laughs> um, charge on ahead. Uh, uh, you need to, to be able to get things done. My goodness. Well, one has to imagine that the world of government and the world of business is radically different. How would you describe the differences of charging through digital transformation in a government environment versus a business? Well, it, it's quite interesting. I, I guess if you're outside of government, um, people have certain kind of set stereotypical views of what government might be like. So people generally in, in faster moving industries in technology, um, advertising, marketing, kind of look at government as a, as a bigger, slower beast. But actually in the period that I worked there, we were doing some really groundbreaking, innovative pieces of work that had the eyes on the world, at least from other governments looking at the UK, uh, to see what we were what we were doing and how we were doing it and how they might be able to learn from us. So, so I guess the first thing is that uh, I uh, I see uh, more similarities than differences in working in uh, large businesses, global HQs. I mean, my my role is um, a head of profession for social media for the cabinet office joining up, so say 32 central government departments, is the same as going to a global HQ and joining up 20 countries. It's actually you know, you might have doctrine come down from the top, but it's actually middle management and people and policy and process um, that enables change uh, programs to, to really embed. So, so I didn't see that many differences, if you like. Well, so then if we stick with the similarities, uh, as you said, there are the different 
connections that need to be made between the different BU, B, business units or maybe departments if you're talking between HR and, and you know IT or whatever. But another way to describe it might be filled with molasses and bureaucracy. Uh, you're absolutely right, but you will find that in as many large organisations uh, uh, as you do government. So, you know, any large institution is kind of driven by the layers and layers of uh, people management. It's very hard to have a, a flat structure or a flatter structure in, in larger organisations. And, you know, many, many uh, forward thinking organisations are trying to flatten those structures for, as you uh, very rightly say, the, the molasses, if you like, and the, the slower moving uh, 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 way in which communication and uh, programs and ideas can travel in the business segment. All right, so let's look at digital transformation. And in the end of the day, going again, I, I like the idea of, of sort of looking at the difference between the way it works in government and the way it works in business. Because when we have digital transformation, we can be talking about communication in general. We can be talking about the innovation process. We can be talking about the internal uh, methodologies and uh, how to better improve research and development. Uh, speed of response time, I don't know, dealing with crises. Uh, how do you break down driving digital transformation when it could potentially cover everything? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a very key question. And, and people mean many different things by it. So the first thing to determine is, um, I look at it as, uh, is it a technical infrastructure project? Um, and, and many people talk about digital transformation. What they really mean is the, the back-end plumbing and the, and the wiring, if you like. So first to determine, it, is, it a, is it technology? Um, and then aside from that, I, I break it down into people, processes and technology because many people, when they talk about digital transformation, in fact, just mean digital marketing transformation and how they're going to enable better, I don't know, customer-centric delivery, for example. So the first thing that you really need to determine is is digging down into the scope of the project and what are the elements that it touches and I think those can easily be enabled in, in people process and technology. So if you had advice to somebody who's saying gosh I really want to accelerate my digital transformation process we've been doing it for two years the boss keeps on hammering at the table or is the boss by the way who's hammering on the table well I, I want more digital transformation I want quicker what kind of advice would you provide for them? Well, absolutely. I mean, A, if it's been running for two years and they still want sort of quicker results, then they really they really need some help. <laughs> um, but the second thing is, what, what do they want uh, to see and what do they want uh, to have been enabled differently as the result of a program or piece of work over a specific time? So what are the actual outcomes that they're looking for? Is it that they're going to pick, I don't know, five, 10, 20 services that they deliver and just make the process uh, much more elegant. So there's a very, very streamlined uh, digital sales process, for example. Or is it that they're actually embarking on a digital literacy program and they need to ensure that all of the people within the business have better skills uh, within digital? Or is it actually that they're trying to do um, a very a very uh, specific technical innovation where moving from print to digital, for example, um, and uh, it's really, really the first thing is framing that scope of work. It strikes me as we, we look at a lot of these projects you and I are working on, that they might come in with a, a, a very different business challenge. For example, I want to accelerate my innovation cycle. For example, I want to make my sales team more productive. 
for example, I want to cut costs. And each comes with their own need and their own different culture and background and baggage and, and sh stuff. What, what also strikes me is that it seems to always lead back down to the same things, which include the boss needs to model the example, we need to be more customer-centric. Do you find the same things and what would you add to that list or, or how would you, uh, you know, answer my thought there? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's looking at very specific problems. Yes, there are um, some elements that you might all always look at, particularly in sort of the first approach, clarifying objectives and undertaking an audit um, of uh, the digital uh, current delivery, if it's a digital change program, for example. But some of the things you mentioned, how do I make my sales team more productive? How are they measuring productivity to start with of their sales team? And that's very unique to actually I want to cut costs. Um, again, again, how are they measuring the current, you know, cost attribution of a particular product or service? Uh, it might be entirely different from how they measure the productivity of a sales, but it's going to start with that um, measurable metric base. If you are putting in a program of activity, you absolutely need to define uh, clear clear objectives and, and break that down very singularly but you, then you have to look at how is that currently being measured much of the work that I do that when I brought in initially is actually to help the C-suite clarify the objectives and clarify the program because they're finding it very hard to specify exactly what they're trying to, to look at themselves in the first instance lovely answer Tiffany um, what about data uh, so let's say that there's a, a term out there and um, it's sort of on everyone's mouths, but to what extent do you find governments and or big businesses managing data and what kind of advice do you have about trying to figure out to use that swamp of a word? Yes, I mean, uh, we, could spend, we could spend an entire podcast just on data. It's one of my favorites. I had the great pleasure to work on the launch of the data.gov.uk, uh, the government's uh, first open data platform, if you like. And was uh, was given Sir Tim Berners Lee as part of my project team uh, to help uh, establish the UK government as the most transparent in the world, uh, which it is now independently accredited as being, and, and a huge, huge um, interest of mine, if you like. So, in terms of the uh, UK government, we had to launch the Open Data Store in something very significantly. Fast, uh, eight. We, we were given the ACE team. Let's face it, to be able to help with that program of work. But uh, we had eight weeks, and we had eight weeks to to be able to do and deliver it to it as um, you know some political deadlines are. And and essentially, the very uh, first thing that we needed to do is be able to uh, make sure that the data uh, was in the same format. So there was a lot of kind of background tagging program uh, to make sure that we could. Uh, build something with the data when it was pulled together. We had to come up for the very first time with kind of data flushing processes to be able to get data out of departments. And then we had to, you know, be able to put it all in one place um, in a way in which that, you know, developers, coders and programmers could use it and make useful uh, things with it. So, so that was an approach, if you like, to look at, actually, let's get the data in the same state. Um, let's ensure that it's stored all in one place. Let's tag it effectively that so we can, um, with linked data, build appropriate um, uh, useful resources with it and, um, and, and keep that open so the uh, UK public could uh, review that at any time, but also to nail that data flushing process. Now, 
since uh, since uh, Data.gov.uk was launched, there was a great interest amongst our team in looking at other government data stores that came out afterwards. And actually, uh, it was interesting to see what came after us and if we could learn those lessons and what we might be able to do again. And of course, everyone's building on each other's uh, work and standing on the shoulders of giants. And um, and it was really interesting to see what came out of Estonia because they've got a much smaller government. Um, they're much smaller you know, policy areas, much small number of kind of pages, but they just publish the code on every page. And actually that was a very, very elegant way of being able to create their data store very simply and very quickly. So so there's there's many different ways in which that organizations can start to, you know, approach data projects. It's all going to come down what what is that for? Uh, what are they going to do with it as a as a result of doing that and being very, very clear on those objectives. But those processes of making sure it's in the same state, um, making sure it's available in, in one place, making sure the data can talk to each other and be and be built upon are kind of the good ground principles, if you like. You need you need a couple of different types of data to make anything useful. So you need historic data, you need um, planning data and forward-looking data, you need real-time data, and then you need uh, data delivered uh, geographically and geolocated to build uh, useful services. And is predictive data also something that we should be talking about? Yeah, so in that future data, the forward-looking data, I include predictive data. Uh-huh. So one of the things I'm thinking about, Tiffany, as we speak, is is this notion of transparency. So when we're talking open, we obviously are going to be talking about transparency. And yet, you can't or don't want to necessarily expose everything. So, for example, you might have uh, material that is confidential. You might have... Uh, you know, your secret service material. So there's obviously some areas that a government has that they don't want to have open. Just focusing on that particular angle with regard to open uh, no, data.gov.uk, how did you decide where the line was between what you will allow open and what should be remain under the under lock and key? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a decision sort of... Um you know, uh, further up in government, if you like, in terms of that to arrive. Because if it was if it was public sector data, then uh, there was a a program that it had to be open. It had to be open. So that's everything from I don't know um, uh, salaries of uh, expenses, what was spent within government departments. I mean, obviously, there's a huge program of work to be able to flush that out in the first place. Uh, so, uh, so essentially. There are, there is some data, there is uh, some data that is private because it's sensitive or it's not within the realms of uh, public use or public knowledge. Uh, we've had within the government context for very many years the you know freedom of information requests. So if a, if a potential individual feels that it is in a public benefit and use, they can ask government directly uh, for that data. And there's teams of people in every government department to. Uh, be able to answer those requests. But there are some things then, if they're a matter of um, public sensitivity or civic contingency, that fall outside of that. Well, it's a, it's a tricky topic because on top of that, the crossover for government is when they go see our friends at Google or at Twitter saying, we want your data too. Um, sorry, who's the, who's the we in that? That would be that the, would government. the government. Ah, uh, yes, okay. So, saying, um, you know, listen... Yeah, listen. You have some tweets that we'd like to, un- or, you know, not some tweets, but some SMSs or whatever that we'd like to um, uncover. 
Yeah, and essentially, I mean, government have got the uh, authority and opportunity to put whatever rules and parameters they have around their uh, put whatever rules and parameters they have around their own data. Um, I'm not. Um, uh, I can't speak of the current government um, uh, having uh, uh, left as a consultant um, uh, a few years ago now in terms of what they're asking of other large departments. So uh, it was interesting in the early days of social media to actually sit down and um, uh, work out what our uh, strategies might be with the huge providers. Um, we had the great opportunity to be visited um, by the head of communications at Facebook to look at actually should we be having you know, uh, Facebook uh, pages from government departments and how that might work, um, how, how we might be able to work and interact together. So I think it's always actually really, really important that uh, government and large businesses essentially make better relationships with platform providers to enable them to have those kind of discussions. But isn't it, isn't it at the heart of that trust? Uh, yeah, but I mean, people have different uh, different levels of trust, don't they? They have yeah. um, different versions of trust uh, between one and each other, and um, uh, in business context. So, uh, what I think is um, super interesting is how how trust has uh, changed, and how how the world is uh, much more transparent as an advent of uh, transparency initiatives such as the UK government, as well as um, uh, the kind of forcing of social media and the personal point of view of individuals to bear down on accountability of organizations and uh, we've seen um we've seen that change i think um edelman do a brilliant uh, tracking barometer every year the edelman trust barometer and the top three kind of trusted individuals in a corporate context were always uh, an academic or a specialist and essentially uh, a person like yourself was always third and that leveled out last year that a person like yourself is as trusted as an academic and specialist, and of, and of course, you know that makes a, that makes a huge effect on how corporations are considering in the communication uh, strategies to engage with you know influencers in the public domain, for example. Going back to another topic, which is a driving innovation, driving agility, and, and part of the digital transformation process. Let's say in a big business, one of the terms we like to say, well, we need to be more entrepreneurial. And so if you're in a big business and, and you, I tell you to, to run a startup in my big business, well, they usually roll the eyes. But we use this word being an entrepreneur. And, and, uh, and you know, some people join big companies or join the government because they're not interested in, the, in that sort of chaotic life of being an entrepreneur. They like the stability. They like the, the idea of job for life. But how do you create or encourage more intrapreneurs, entrepreneurs within the organization? It's a fascinating subject and um, it's been a pleasure to be a, a part of my work really because what we've noticed in all of the digital transformation uh, processes and programs uh, that, that I've worked, had, had the pleasure to kind of work on and run over the, the last decade or so is, is actually the people enablement of enabling those programs to happen. You can have all the great processes and all the great technology, but actually kind of motivating uh, people to be able to take those programs forward is is the success of most programs. But actually you get certain type of people, don't you, who are more entrepreneurial, if you like. They like working in large organizations and being able to uh, help uh, help navigate uh, that space and help make change and impact within a large business and an organization and kind of spotting those 
individuals, nurturing those individuals or creating programs to enable people to contribute is, is hugely satisfying, but hugely, hugely effective. I mean, most, most organisations, if you look at um, a learning engagement programme, will start at the very kind of simple lunch and learns, you know, it's um, open and people turn up to it. And actually, when you start to map then uh, perhaps uh, internal kind of training and learning against people's uh, job description, you're going to get more benefit from that. But, but where it becomes really interesting is is the entrepreneurial programs, whether that's building corporate university and allowing people that kind of push and pull learning or actually challenging them, all of the workforce or uh, a small part of the workforce and take them through a program through looking at, hey, uh, we would love you. She's given permission. We absolutely want your ideas um, and, uh, and giving them a process of enabling them to test those ideas and drive those programs are where we've seen, you know, dramatic change in organizations uh, allowing individuals to do that. All right, well, so here's where pushback comes. All right, but you can't do that at my place because I don't have any money. Second of all, I'm still using BlackBerry and uh, my internet's crap. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, I had the great pleasure to work um, with uh, the uh, National Trust and uh, helping them with the digital and social media. And some of, their, some of their castles, some of their car parks, some of their beaches, they don't have Wi-Fi, right? Yeah. They, yeah. They, they don't have um, really good broadband even sometimes to be able to you know, transfer of digital communication. So with no budget, with no money, with old technology, one of the castles has a cauldron in the fireplace in reception that people write down ideas and put into the cauldron. <laughs> so that, that to me, I absolutely love because that is innovation, you know, with its sleeves rolled up really. This isn't yeah. about money. This isn't about shiny technology to enable those ideas to happen. They wanted everyone from a ranger to a shepherd to a visitor center manager to be able to contribute to new ideas. And that was the common facility of which they could all do it. So you, you just need to be creative. You don't need a big budget. It's not about the tech. It's about the mindset. Um, so what about the the notion of the leader? So the leader of a business CEO has to uh, respond to shareholders, uh, is also responsible for delivering profitability, uh, top-line growth, hiring and firing, trade union negotiations, factory removals and ups and downs. And then there's this thing called digital transformation and all of that. To what extent or how does a CEO lead uh, the digital transformation process? Is it something that can be delegated or must it be led by him or her? So I, I find digital transformation uh, led by different people with C in the title. So it can come from finance, it can come from CFO, can come from a great COO. You want your leaders to absolutely uh, champion the program and almost every successful program we've seen is because of the leadership of that particular program. But we have we have also seen people lead from the middle of the pack. And that might be that the CEO isn't perhaps most the digitally enabled or the greatest digital vision. But um, to borrow your phrase, it's about the mindset, really. They don't necessarily need to know how to drive the business forward digitally, but they must allow it to happen or uh, champion that 
a particular program to let let people know it's it's permissible that they have the the support to drive those innovation and change programs through and we've seen uh, many organizations take a program forward with people with bright ideas in the middle saying, hey, we think we're going to change the business in this particular way. And it's allowing people not to have uh, or a, a kind of reporting bottom line to it. So they have the opportunity to experiment and they have the opportunity to fail, really, to be able to try new things and innovate. And it's the leaders allowing and uh, championing the uh, ability to be able to do that, not just leading the program, which um, also creates success. So uh, uh, without citing anyone, it, it makes me think, you know, you can give this job, per se, to a middle manager or someone else on, on the executive suite. The challenge is transforming that individual or, or enabling that individual actually to be the transformer. And the issue could be uh, in the character of that person. So for example, uh, the boss, it's the boss's son in certain companies, uh, which I know. It could be the, uh, the most geeky person. It could be someone who is a consultant who comes from another organization. So it, they, they have different uh, backgrounds. But the challenge is how, how do they then imbue and transform everybody else and pull along? Because nobody has the full set of equipment in their basket yeah absolutely and it's about um setting up our, our, you know there's referred to sometimes as hubs or centers of excellence so d finding and defining your peer group across the organization that can enable that change whatever that program of activity might be uh to be able to ensure that the relevant uh, departments or parts of the organization that you need to work with are part of the collaborative endeavor so they're bought into the process. They're the right people who can enable things to happen. They can make decisions. They're the people with the, either the bright ideas or the opportunities to take those messages forward. Um, and it's creating that, that network of internal advocates around that program that I think makes programs sometimes very successful. I, I was going to take a, an example of somebody uh, like Tim Berners-Lee. An amazing guy, knows a ton of stuff. Is he the kind of person you would have as your advocate? Uh, because, you know, just an example, I don't know how he is. You can tell us how, he, how wonderful a man he is. But, uh, you know, identifying that person, just because they may know a lot, they may not be the right conduit because of the lack of business sense. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you take the Open Data Program. He's a lovely man, by the way. <laughs> I imagine as much. Never met him. Uh, very, very, very affable, um, uh, brilliant, uh, brilliant academic, um, uh, and very friendly guy, and very, very excitable um, in uh, things that interest him, particularly around data. It was an absolute pleasure to work with him. Um, but essentially, yes, you have, you know, a leader who has all the ideas and the knowledge, and how does that manifest in a business? Well, there's a small kind of production team, which was 
you know, I think there was about five of us working on uh, open data in the UK government. Um, and then actually we had to find the uh, uh, people with the data in different departments. So then you create a, um, a role, if you like, not as a, someone's kind of paid job title, but actually we're going to make you responsible for data flushing within your department. And when we mean government department, it's the Department for Work and Pensions or the Department for Health or, you know, the uh, Department for Transport. I mean, they're large uh, super large entities in their own right rather than in businesses you'd have, perhaps have HR and compliance and sales and such like as departments maybe and and essentially you know some of those people were analysts some of those people actually you know sat within a digital field some of them were statisticians but actually creating that okay your responsibility is for data flushing and it's that network effect so you've got one guy who has the big program and all the big ideas you've got a small kind of production team that have the authority and responsibility to enable it to happen and then your conduits who have the access to that information uh, to be able to kind of create that information flow really must have been a very important part of that program the communication so in other words, because if, if Tiffany St. James, who the hell is she, knocks on my door saying, I need your data, and the individual behind the door says, bugger off, um, <laughs> how, how, give us an idea of how the communication went down to enable that. Yeah, that, that was really fascinating. So um, the previous project that um, I had to data.gov where this was also an issue was um, I was the first communications director of DirectGov. So the precursor to gov.uk. So it was the, the government's, it was in fact at the time and probably since the world's largest web rationalization program because we tore down 95% of government's websites over five years and uh, and repurposed that content um, or made a lot of it obsolete on, on one government website, uh, direct gov at the time, in one tone of voice. And actually at the time... Um, as part of my responsibility to um, engage with departments and uh, get their information, not necessarily the data at that point, but their information on this site with no long-term budget, no long-term strategy, no mandate that this had to happen. And, oh, by the way, your team will downsize significantly as a result of this program and you'll lose half your people. Can you imagine what an interesting sell that is? Oh, yeah, right? I love that one. <laughs> Um, and and that's been a large part of my work, and it's it's, it's stakeholder engagement at, at its highest touch point because people are protective of their areas. They're protective of the information people they hold and the budget. Something really proud of that. So you have to look at people's personal and political agenda. You have to get it mandated from on high as much as you possibly. But in some instances, we've had things in the government mandated by the prime minister and then government departments would say, oh, yes, but, you know, we're an exception, you understand. <laughs> you know, that's not how it is done here. So you have to look at some of the some of the work that I did. Well, how do you influence, you know, a senior leader? And you have to look at who are they influenced by and how perhaps do you get the right information to the right people's hands so that, uh, they can be aware because it doesn't come up from a grassroots way in all times. I mean, some of the work that I did was go and have dinner with entrepreneurs and tell them about the great work we were doing in government. And it came back in, you know, to ministers sometimes in, in that way. Uh, who are they influenced by and how on earth can you have an opportunity to change their mind? And well, what is their fear factor? Is it is it that um, is it a reputational issue? They don't want to lose a particular part of their work, their work remit, their budget. Is it they don't understand the program and therefore, you know, have, have uh, they need some knowledge to be able to make those decisions? Is it they don't agree with the program and therefore you have to look at 
um, you know, putting the pros and cons in such a way that you can help enable them to, uh, you know, come along with you on that program. I mean, there's there's many many different ways at this, and it and it's one. I think it is more one of one of the tougher things to be able to do in a transformation program is influencing leadership to enable that program to happen. Well, it's what you say. I love it because. It makes me think, well, on the one hand, you could play the negative approach, fear factors, what's stopping you. But I, I feel oftentimes that what's stopping them is actually they don't know where they want to go. And so you, they, they, they don't want to go, but they don't know where they don't want to go. So it's back to your point, I say, maybe it's about helping them formulate their strategy in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's, trying to, it's trying to understand people, isn't it, really? What makes them tick? And, and it's trying to be able to read between kind of personal and political agenda with a small p. I'm not talking politics as the UK government. It's not the side of the work that I was working on. But even in large businesses, you know, perhaps they need to be made to look brilliant, you know, to their peers or to their direct report um, or the people that they're reporting to. Um, and, and it's working out um, how you can help them with their uh, known knowns and unknown knowns, if you like, in terms of that, to be able to explain things and break things down in such a way that they can make better choices and decisions and, and understand your program of activity, but where it fits their agenda. Last uh, part of that, maybe, is just this notion of creating a legacy. In the, in the realm of knowing where you want to go and knowing what is your strategy, it occurs to me, Tiffany, that we might be in this most extraordinary of periods where we have finally at our disposal an extraordinary set of new tools, platforms, and devices, even if it's not about processes and technologies, but that are, are going to facilitate the creation of tremendous new legacies. The issue is, or, is, or maybe the question is, is that something that speaks to everybody? Or is it too grandiose an idea and only for the elite or silly intellectual few? I don't think it's a question of elite or silly intellectual few, but I certainly don't think legacy appeals to everyone. Uh, there are people who, who actually only get out of bed to create impact and uh, are navigated you know, interesting and unique and unusual career paths because they're chasing change and they're chasing impact. There are people you know, who, who have one singular dream in terms of what they want to do and deliver and they want to change the world in a particular fashion and, and there are many people who this, this agenda doesn't doesn't cross the horizon in terms of just getting everything together whether it's running their family or running their work or um, uh, you know attending to their, their hobbies and interests that uh, I don't think everyone I don't think everyone thinks about legacy sort of like you can play a rugby match or a game and you play 80 minutes, you win, you lose, that's impact. The other one is build a museum that lasts for 100 years. You know, and some people get their rocks off of great team, great performance, some flair, great pass, and win on a rugby field. And others get, get their rocks off by having their name on a museum. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's really interesting in the digital context, though, because I was... Um, I was uh, kind of clearing out the other day and looking at my own kind of portfolio and almost everything that I've worked on 
is really hard to point to because it's superseded by the next digital innovation. So, so the work that might have gone in the past and the work that I'm proud of delivering, um, then essentially it doesn't. You can't point to it anymore. Like I, but but luckily I've worked on some great programs. I think that people remember because of the impact I had on their life at the time. Uh, so people being able to get the car tax, you know, on online was, you know, one of the great innovations that people go, oh, you were part of that program. That was great. That was so helpful and, and still maintains, even if the site itself doesn't exist anymore. Again, something that sunset is. So, Tiffany, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Time is of the essence. How can people follow you, track you down, get in touch with you? What would you prefer? I am Tiffany St. James on most social channels. Um, most of my uh, interaction with people is on Twitter, so at Tiffany St. James on Twitter. Um, and please do always kind of wave at me on LinkedIn too. All right, I'll put also, your, your, of course, your, uh, your site in uh, the show notes. Thanks for coming on the line, and I'll see you soon, Tiffany. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Minter. Bye-bye. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal That you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly we would paint a lover's portrait with all your favorite shades.
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.